I don't know what inferior swill this is, but I ordered a lot of hula. The scotch on the rocks, please. Any scotch will do, as long as it's not a blend, of course. Uh, single malt. Glenlivet, Glenfiddich, perhaps. Maybe a Glengow. Any Glen. There's a special rung in hell reserved for people who waste good scotch. I prefer rum. Rum's good. Welcome to the Whiskey Snobs of Lower Moco podcast. My name is Jesse. I'm Aaron. And I'm Adam. We're doing a slight diversion from our normal focus on whiskey to taste some really interesting rums. Two of the three of us, I think I've been exploring the rum world uh, more and more the last few months. Uh, it's an exciting time for rum. There's a lot of new great releases. There's a lot more education about it. And from a Scotch buyer's perspective, what's very attractive about it are the price points are generally quite a bit lower. It feels like maybe where bourbon was 10, 15 years ago. So it feels like an exciting time to explore, try new things, take risks, take chances, figure out what you like, what you don't like. And we're having a lot of fun with it. It feels like a great thing to do during the summer. I'll turn it over to Adam to say a few more words. So the first bottle that we're sharing this evening is the Clarine Le Rocher rum, which is sort of an interesting diversion from the normal sort of rum lines that we've been tasting because it's a particular type of rum that's made in Haiti that's a little more decentralized, a little more organic, a little less regulated than some of the other rums. I think of it as more akin to mezcal in the sense that you have a lot of very small distilleriettes that are making clarine in uh, different neighborhoods and they are all using their own methods or their own different takes on their methods. Uh, this is still a pot still distillation, but it's a clear unaged uh, spirit with a little bit of a yellow or greenish tint to it. And uh, I understand that it wasn't until just recently that clarine was imported into the United States. So it's it's more readily available now than it has been in the past. Nosing it, I get immediately that sort of pungent, almost rotting fruit kind of nose that I... That's what I'm smelling. More, more closely associate with the Jamaican Hogo right. uh, Dunder uh, Mucky Rums. One thing I read about it that I think is apropos is that it's essentially like moonshine uh, in that it's being done in these like very rustic kind of ramshackle setups with kind of homemade stills practically. So super micro production. But still perfectly safe, right? We're not talking yeah, about the Dominican no, well, Republic. Well, uh, no, that actually you need to food. put an asterisk on that. Let me, well, I'll, I'll come right back to that. <laughs> it's basically like a local, you know, Haitian drink that's just meant to be shared with family. But it's one of these things where one of these great bottlers, an independent bottler in the rum world, and I don't even want to mess up his name, but uh, Luca Garniaro or something similar, who runs uh, Velier, uh, Independent Bottle, basically just traveled through Haiti and found the ones that he liked and basically, you know, came up with a way to bottle it and ship it first to Europe and then to the U.S. So, you know, there really is no Clarine original production that you can buy. It's basically only an independent bottling. And and the thing I'd say about it in terms of whether it's it's safe is that they actually did have to recall a Clarine Casimir for like slight lead levels Ooh. and apparently it wasn't like anything that was truly toxic or anything right. but it was still like out of an abundance of caution sure basically had to recall it 
And then I just was looking on Facebook and saw somebody else posted a bottle of Clarine that had like turned black. <laughs> and again, there was all this debate about it and they contacted it and it's perfectly fine. But it, the point is that it, this is super, you know, rustic, definitely small batch production. As the non-rum drinker in this group, there's been a lot of words thrown out there in the last few minutes about rum stuff like Clarine and... What are you saying, like muck or the muck and the dunder? Yeah, the so, so I'm gonna declare my ignorance and say I don't don't know what these terms mean. Give me a quick rundown so that I can be the an expert on rum by the time we're done. I can give you my basic understanding of it, which is at the elementary level, but very similar to the sour mash process in bourbon. What you may have in the muck pits uh, in for the Jamaican distilleries is they will take what's left over after fermentation and mix that back into the wash before it is re-fermented. And so that adds uh, sort of a cyclical processing uh, to the entire enterprise. Gotcha. And so that's what's known as the, the, the muck or the dunder. And it gives a very stereotypical flavor profile to the Jamaican distilleries that use that particular method. The term hogo is actually essentially the French hogo, uh, which means high smell or strong smell. And so the Jamaican rums that are hogo tend to have a very, very pungent nose that's invariously described as rotting fruit, uh, decaying organic material, uh, bodies dying, uh, that kind of thing. Oh, sounds delightful. Yeah, really, really, you're really selling it. But I, I mean, I think it is an acquired taste and, acquired, and, and, and really an acquired smell because I actually think the smell is more intense and off-putting than sometimes the taste is actually better than the smell and can be quite different. And I think that's the case with this. I think the, ta- the palate on this is a lot better than the nose. I think the nose is pretty off-putting and, and bizarre. I think the taste is, is a lot better. Well, you know, I'll say for an unaged spirit, I'm very impressed with this. It has such a personality with almost with no time in the wood at all. And it's almost completely clear except for that, that tinge that I mentioned. But that tinge may actually even come from the glass and not from the spirit itself. Because when I hold up the spirit in the Glencairn, it looks almost completely clear. Yeah. Well, it is. You're, I mean, you're right. It's, it's basically a clear spirit with just the slightest tint of yellow. It's almost like a fool's errand to try to capture all the different notes, flavor notes on this. I mean, I think I've read a lot of different reviews that just have like an incredibly long list of all the different notes they they can pick up from all different types of fruit to, you know, herbal notes and earthy notes and gasoline and plastic. And I mean, it's kind of amazing. And it is true. I think these I there's get, a ton of layers. I'm getting me plastic. plastic. Yeah, really. <laughs> like the, I'm getting like a plastic on the finish. The taste is really a lot better. You actually get some of the sweetness from a rum. They're normally, I mean, I think a lot of people have a misconception about rums are all like sweet because they're made from sugar. And that's not always necessarily true. I think it's because a lot of people drink these heavily flavored or rums where they add a lot of sugar. But you still do expect rum to have some kind of sweet note to it at all. And I think you do get this on the palate. Uh, but again, on top of like all other kinds of crazy herbal and earthy and pungent notes. This is a finish that I, to me, it just seems to drop off almost immediately. I think the nose is really strong. The palate is really impressive. And then it almost completely disappears. Yeah. You know, I hear you. I wouldn't even call it medium. I would say yeah, short, short, finish. short. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's interesting, you know, on some of the Facebook groups and blogs and other things that I've been reading about when people really do go kind of nuts for clearing, but with a big asterisk, again, the second time I'm using that word, <laughs> but like that they recognize that it's not everybody's cup of tea because right. it is such a very peculiar taste. And, you know, and I think people are loving it. Uh, the ones who do are going crazy for it because there's no doubt there's a ton of flavor mm-hmm. in an unaged spirit. And, uh, you know, I think if you do spend time with it, you'll get a lot out of it. Second, it's cheap. I mean, this was normally a $40 bottle that I got on, on sale. So I spent like 35 bucks on this. And, and I think, and then the story, I mean, just how incredibly, you know, this era of, you know, standardization and globalization to have something that's just so, I mean, talk about kind of locavore. I mean, this is just uh, the extreme. So I think. I think all of that and the kind of romantic elements of it are what's really uh, attractive to people. But um, I can't say I'm not sure I would know what to do with this. I think it's a little too pungent to have as a sipper. And I tried making a cocktail with it and I thought some of the off notes kind of came forward. And I think it's a great experiment. I'm not sure I'd fall in the camp of people who like are in love with this. On a higher ABV rum, would you do something like you do with like a scotch and add a few drops of water to help op- help it open up? I mean, like this one, I think is 47.2. I don't know if you would add water to that, but is that something people would do with rum? I mean, I think you can. I um, With some of the higher ABV rums, I, I've added water, but I, I'm not sure. It maybe it'd be interesting to kind of do some research on the chemical, you know, element to this, the scientific element of it, but it doesn't seem to have quite the same effect. Mm. You know, I think that there is a difference between barley and something like sugarcane in terms of its properties mm. and, and how much it, it is changed by water. I, I, I have found that it does lower the alcohol burn, obviously. Yes. But I'm not sure I've found that it kind of opens up yeah. the taste in the same way that you get with a... Yeah, there's certainly some drams of scotch that will just completely... You know, do a 180 on you as far as, you know, once you add a few drops of water. And it sounds like it's not going to do that quite so much with the yeah with the rum. So this is a peculiar way to start a rum tasting, but I think we're going to move on to well, Adam Brown. No, I, well, so while Jesse and Aaron were talking, I, I was curious, because this is such a pungent nose, to see how it compared to a bottle that I brought, the Hampton 2011 Jamaican pure single rum that it has a uh, an ester level of 231.3 grams per hectoliter of alcohol and so this is one also at about 60.5 percent abv that i thought had a little bit of a hogo smell to it but compared to the clarine it's almost non-existent which is actually sort of a surprise to me yeah, well, I mean, this particular bottle, and we can hopefully get into it more. I think, you know, because it's a, a real craft production and it's seven years and it's aged in the tropics, you know, I, I do think that Hogo seems to go down with aging. Oh, and I think, you know, some of the younger ones we've had really have like that intense smell. But So so I poured the Hamden 2011 that I poured initially into the wine tulip glass. I re-poured it into the Glencairn to try to give more of a consistent uh, comparison to the Clarine La Roche in the um, in that I had that was poured in a Glencairn, and I looking at the two of them, I really almost I prefer the Clarine, I just to the the nose of it. Yeah, I mean it's just so it's so interesting. It, there is something that's a little off putting to it, but it's the way you described uh, Scotch in um, 
episode one of your first experience with it, which was, you know, this most awful taste that you couldn't stop thinking about. And this is sort of, the chlorine is sort of similar. It's just, there's something very interesting and intriguing about it. And I keep bringing it up to my nose to nose it. And I like it. Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting, but I think, you know, I do have a, a, a kind of challenging in the same way I do find cha- like new make whiskey challenging or mezcals because, you know, the thing about aging in barrels is you're not only imparting the, you know, woody vanillins and other elements from the wood, but the wood itself is extracting some of the mm-hmm. molecules that, you know, can impart like off notes to right. the whiskey. So it's a really kind of a two way street. And, you know, not to be too TMI, but I think like sometimes when you drink something that's got a lot of these kind of off notes to it, it kind of sticks with you. Like after you drank it, it kind of comes back to, to revisit you. Like, when, yeah. and I, I get that with this, you know, La Roche. Like, it, I think there are things about it that I wish you could kind of strip out through aging. Not, not that I think it needs like even more flavor from wood, but I think the wood would help kind of filter out some of the, um, what is the word I'm looking for that kind of uh, off notes that get pulled out from the whiskey? Some of the bitterness, some of the extremes. Yeah, but there's, it's like a general scientific term for, uh, I'll have to look it up maybe. Yeah. Nasty shit. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I was just re nosing the Clarine Le Rocher, and I'm telling you, it just it reminds me of sticking my nose into a brown sugar bag. Yeah, I, I get that. I get that. I, With some decay on the side. So what, what I keep thinking about after hearing both of you kind of talk about this is just how different of a spirit any sort of new make or unaged spirit is from the sense that the wood really is making a chemical change to the spirit and one that happens over a long period of time. And so this is coming at sort of a second production stage that's missing an entire third stage of production. So is that what clarine means? Is that it's not been aged in wood versus others that? Well, I, I, my understanding is that clarine refers to the specific uh, type of rum that's made in Haiti under certain conditions. I so it's, so it's different from, for example, the um, the the some of the agricoles that are made in Haiti. Very cool. Yeah. So should we talk a little bit more now about this other Hamden that you poured? Uh, I mean, Hamden's kind of a uh, legendary distillery, and um, this particular bottle that you have is – actually, it is from the same independent bottler, this Velier, uh, that seems to have its fingers in a lot of really great projects. <laughs> well, there's not too much more to say other than what's been said. It's, it's, a, uh, it, it's been aged seven years, so the angel share on this is the – Label, uh, infamously as noted, is greater than 49%. So what that means, <laughs> it's anywhere from 50 to 99% angel share. I think of this as sort of a, um, a good introduction to a lighter Hogo Jamaican rum, where it's not overpowering like you might find in uh, a Dr. Bird or a Funk Unaged uh, release or some of the other very high ester releases, uh, but it is a good introduction. Should I move mine over to a Glencairn? Uh, I think for this, you know, I'm finding the Glencairn to be a little more easily accessible from the, you know, because the, the aromatics are sort of focused in a little bit more of a narrow channel. 
I think actually the clarine would benefit from some time in a in a wine tulip glass because the aromatics are so much more active. Yeah. Well, I think this hand is interesting because I mean, um, even just kind of dipping our toes in the rum world, you know, we've been able to try a couple of different handins by other name. I mean, I think one of the things I've been reading about is the amount of rum that major producers sell in bulk. It's called bulk rum that they just sell off to. And then so, you know, some handin may find its way into, you know, Captain Morgan or, you know, yeah. some of these major producers. They just need like massive amounts of just, you know, unaged rum. And so some of these smaller producers like handin, you know, in, in the same way that in Scotch, you know, people, you know, distilleries sell their uh, new make and, you know, or barrels uh, to the blending houses uh, that happens in rum. But so you, Dr. Bird is a Hamden and you've got Stolen Overproof, which mm-hmm. is a Hamden. I'm sure there's a lot of others out there, but those are two of the more well-known right now. And, um, but I would think it's fair to say that those are kind of lower end releases where uh, just given price point and exclusivity, this is a much uh, more expensive and uh, rare release. And to me, it's like leagues better. Um, I mean, I think that the Hogo that you you know, experience in any of the Hamdens really has been tamed in this one, even though it's a high ABV and rounded off and just, you know, balanced with uh, some of the wood notes. And um, I just think it's excellent. And, you know, I, I think that Hamden does have, uh, you know, the ones that I've tried has a distinctive, what I call kind of a candy note. Mm-hmm. And I think when it's not tamed, it can be a little too much. It's almost like a sickly sweet yeah. uh, taste for me. Where I, so this one, though, I think does it right, where it's there, but it's balanced with other flavors. So when I'm tasting this Hamden, the first thing I feel on the palate, it just makes me think of bourbon. That's interesting. I don't get that, but I, I can see that. It turns into something completely different. I hear what you're saying. Like, once it starts to get to like the, the middle of the palate, it's it's something different. But that first, that what would you call that first part of the palate, the kind of... the, the the forefront of the, the palate. Forefront, yeah. The forefront of the palate is so bourbony to me that I would say, yeah. like, if you're a bourbon drinker looking to get into rum, this would be a good entry level drug. Well, it's uh, you know, you make an interesting point because uh, despite all of the amazing amounts of information uh, that are posted on or that are printed on the label, uh, some of it might be misleading in uh, Adam's view, but you know, it doesn't say anything about the barrel type mm. um, and whether this is new oak or ex bourbon. My guess is, is that it is new oak based mm-hmm. on the flavor, but it's also the fact that it's aged in the tropics. I think, uh, you know, in the heat, you're really getting like a more rapid uh, maturation process, mm-hmm. but to some degree, it probably then is a lot closer to like bourbon aging than like scotch. And yeah. you're just getting this like intense uh, wood, you know, uh, elements in the, in the flavor profile. And I think, you know, that that's where you're getting that kind of yeah. little, uh, bourbon-y. And, notes. and I find bourbon generally very sweet on my palate, which is not what I usually go for in a spirit. But I've been getting a little bit more into some other bourbons that aren't so strong in the sweet category. But it makes it easy to pick up the bourbon notes in other bourbon cask aged whiskeys. So that flavor is just so like tattooed on my tongue that I yeah. can, that, like that that's what stuck out to me that's what it kind of reminded me of like i'm getting so much of that same little bit and it's just very short in that beginning part of the palette 
it then completely turns into something different. Now, you just mentioned a couple things that uh, I think would, would be interesting to circle back to. One is the whole notion of being aged in the tropics, which is something that really doesn't exist in the bourbon or in the scotch world, which is that in the rum world, you have a lot of rums that are aged in the tropics, and so they have that much higher age, angel share. They have that much higher uh, heat activity happening in the barrel versus continental aging, where uh, rum independent ballers will buy bulk rum and age it in Europe, for example, where it won't have those same tropical maturation characteristics like an Indian single malt wood or like a... Uh, rum aged in the tropics would. And so that lends itself to different flavor profiles. And some people look for the continental aging and some people look for the tropical aging. But regardless, it sort of communicates something about the flavor profile. So now yeah. it would be fun to have them take the same new make and see what the different aging location does to the spirit. Take like similar barrels, same spirit, aged in two different locations. Yeah, and I think you'll you'll find, what, I think that would be an interesting uh, experiment, but I think what you'll find is very similar to the Scotland versus Kentucky example, where in Kentucky you really can't age things for 25 years because they'll be completely over-oaked and there'll be too much of an angel share, versus in Scotland you really can't age things uh, at the younger end of the spectrum. It needs more time mm -hmm. for the spirit to soak into the wood and come back. Unless you're Kilhoman. Unless you're Kilhoman, and then you have the magic <laughs> um, And then one of the interesting things that I was reading about in terms of this uh, you know, difference between tropical aging and continental aging is you also have to consider what's happening just in the transport. I mean, if you're mm -hmm. taking something from Jamaica mm -hmm. to France, you know. Uh, and it's overseas. not in a neutral vessel. I mean, it's in. It's, it's usually in the barrel, right. And, but you're like transporting. I mean, it, some of it feeds into that same thing with like Jefferson's Ocean and what effect does like spending time out on a, a boat getting rocked around, you know, what is that kind of violent sloshing? Does that actually speed up aging? Uh, I think the kind of jury's out on the science of it, but uh, they say like, that's another thing you have to consider if you really, you know, it's, you just can't like ignore the fact that it's going to not only, you know, some of these uh, bottlings will break down, you know, I mean, one of the ones we may try in a little bit here that was from Fiji actually uh, spells out, you know, aged for seven years in tropic aging and then continental aging for two more years in X uh, cognac casks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But then you think, well, getting from Fiji to France by boat, boat is going to, you know, yeah. probably a month or something like that where it's sloshing around. <laughs> now, another interesting thing that you just said is you, you referenced Hamden as a smaller producer. Is that... Your impression? Well, I mean, not like just compared to, you know, your Captain Morgan's or something. Right. Uh, what, what is the Captain Morgan's distillery? Well, I think they're actually, I mean, it is an actual distillery. Um, Where does it mean? What? Uh, stump me on this. I mean, I actually feel like it might be the U.S. Virgin Islands. It might uh, be on St. Thomas. Yeah. Um, so you, you talk about Isla, and I, I have a rough idea of the size of each distillery, Kilhoman versus Kulila versus Ardbeg versus Lagavulin versus Brooklotti. In the rum world, I have no idea what the relative size of Hamden Estate versus a uh, Long Pond versus a uh, Worthy Park or a Foursquare. What is Foursquare's operation like? I have no idea. I know they kick out a lot of product. They have a lot of different lines. But I don't know what the size of their operation is. 
Well, then you compare it to like Bacardi. I mean, that's, that's you know, just got to be massive. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's interesting. And I think one of the things that is fun about rum is, you know, the variety of I mean, a really, and it's hard to find interesting stuff. There's no doubt. Most stores you go into and you look at the rum section and it's just like the same old stuff. But, you know, there's incredible variety. Uh, we're discovering like from each island really has a distinctive profile. And then, and then on that island, you might have a couple of different distilleries. And then within those distilleries, they have several different, uh, you know, uh, stills. Yeah. And then we've been another kind of element we've been uh, trying to understand better is this notion of marks and um, uh, M-A-R-Q-U-E. And it's a uh, kind of a term that as best as we can tell uh, is, you know, like a recipe. And it might be a recipe in the sense of, you know, both, you know, whatever the kind of uh, whether they're using molasses or sugarcane or, you know, what the. What, what kind of yeast, how long it's being fermented, uh, how long the distillation is, which still it's in. So, I mean, it seems to be borne out by several different variables, but it ends up in a certain type of flavor profile. So then even within each distillery, they may have several different marks that you can then try to hunt down for. And, and the, the facet of that that has always sort of surprised me is that the rum folks spend a lot more time talking about type of still than I think folks in the bourbon or scotch world do, where you basically have your pot still or your column still. But in the rum case, you have the blends of the stills. You have the double, what is it, Hamden 2011? Yeah, the Hamden 2011 has the double retort that they, double retort pot still at Hamden Estate. There's something called a John Doerr pot still. I have no idea what that actually means. Different types of pot stills. So, you know, it's interesting because I, I came to rum... From a Captain Morgan's perspective, where that was all I remembered from high school, college, Captain Morgan, Bacardi maybe, but nothing beyond that. So it's the equivalent, I guess, of a Jim Bean or a Jack Daniel, uh, lower shelf type of stuff. But there really is a lot of uh, differentiation and there's a lot of um, a lot of thought that goes into these bottles. So you were kind of um, twiddling the twine. <laughs> it is kind of fun. So, so I... I um... That's not just like a metaphor. There, I'm actually there is twine on some of these bottles, and I guess I was fidgeting with it. The the one that's most the, the brand that's most associated with this is Plantation, and you know that's the the place of Plantation in the rum world right now is probably would be a podcast in and of itself. I mean, it's it's a essentially it is an independent bottler, yeah. but they just have a massive operation and they just buy a ton of different stuff and they put out some standard releases that you can find anywhere. There are three stars like a, on a or lightly aged rum. Uh, they put out an overproof, which is the kind of rum term for cast strength or, or above. And terroir. Yeah. And they put on all the, out all these different types of special releases and they're owned by, uh, you know, Ferrand, is it Cognac Ferrand or Pierre Ferrand? And, they're a cognac producer. You know, they've got you know a guy who's really uh, leading the charge in all these different rum releases. And, you know, he is somewhat controversial. I mean, I think people, you know, don't deny that they put out some great stuff, but they also add sugar to their, a lot of their rums. Uh, and sometimes they're transparent about it. Other times, I guess they're not, or maybe they're getting more transparent based on some of the backlash. And I mean, I think they're, Attitude is that there's a long tradition of it in the rum world, and there's no doubt about that. But I think, you know, a lot of the rum 
kind of connoisseurs or people who are coming from whiskey uh, love like unadulterated spirit and really want something that doesn't have added sugar and you know no chill filtration no coloring anyway so they're they're a bit controversial this particular release is a fiji you know aged it's from the i think it's all from the same there's really only one distillery in fiji south pacific distillery this is distilled in 2009 as I was saying before, it's eight, seven years in Fiji and then another two uh, in France. And then this, this one does not have any added sugar or dosage, as the term is. Which is an interesting point because, you know, you could say counterintuitively that, well, what's the point uh, of restricting the sugar that's added to the spirit when you're a lot of folks are just going to dump rum into cocktails that have tons of sugar added. And the best analogy that I've heard uh, has been, it's very similar to cast-strength whiskey in the sense that people prefer cast-strength whiskey because then they can decide how much they want to water it down, and no one else is going to water it down for them. And so in a similar sense with rum, you're deciding how much sugar you want to add through various cocktail ingredients. Yeah, I think that's fair. It matters to me, and I and I and when I do have rums that I bought, I bought a plantation, Guiana, you know, from 2005 or something like that, it looked interesting. And I looked online and, and, you know, there are these websites, these blogs that have done testing on the uh, dosage levels in a pretty wide range of, of rums. And it was pretty low. I mean, it was... Well, why, are you, why are you using a French accent for the dosage? Well, that's why, because I think it is, the French term wouldn't be dosage. I mean, it, 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 it is dosage. a French, it is dosage. It's well, a what does dosage mean? It means like. It a, means, yeah, adding sugar. Yeah. So it's like hogo. I mean, there's these terms that are meant. <laughs> so even though you look at it and it looks like an English word, it is, yeah. I mean, you, you often see it in italics because it is from the French dosage. You know, when I did the math, the amount of added sugar is actually like very low. It's like a gram right. in a one and a half ounce pour. Yeah. So you think that's really not much. I mean, when you add like sugar to your coffee, I mean, you're adding like, you know, eight to 10 grams or something, but it's still, even if it's a psychological, it still just tasted too sweet. Mm. Um, so, well, and then there's also the same criticism that's levied in, again, going back to the whiskey world with respect to coloring, where if you're coloring to uh, <laughs> sort of make something appear older. So if you're, if you're, using dosage as a technique to round out the edges or artificially smooth a, a or tame a rough spirit, that feels a little artificial and it feels a little manufactured. Yeah. Um, the other the last thing I'll say about dosage is that, again, we could go on for hours about this really because there's a lot of discussion about it. And I think one of the main complaints that a lot of people have is that, um, uh, you know, brands are just not transparent about their, dosage and uh so you know it's only because of these independent sources like blogs and i think there's some scandinavian government that has done some testing through one of their uh you know scientific institutes um but you know it, it i think a lot of brands do it because that added sugar gives it like a richer mouthfeel that that people associate with a prestige or luxury brand so, so this one here the plantation has no dosage correct and you can tell yeah it's a very dry it's a little, it's a little rougher around the edges so you can kind of get why bottlers would want to add some sugar to it 
yeah. appeal but, to more men. So this is one that, uh, you know, interestingly, the tropical aging is seven years, and the continental aging, or élevage, was two years. Yeah. The what élevage? The élevage. It almost seems like a patronizing term. It's like a, they're elevating it uh, by aging it in Europe. Oh, by right now. Uh, elevated to European yeah. aging. But I, I think this is, uh, you know, this is one of my favorites because I find it really balanced in there is some of the hogo, you know, a little bit of a yeah a tartness to it, but there's also some grassiness yeah. to it. I get some. It's like I, a more. Yeah. Um, I get some. I do get some notes that I would say are kind of oily, uh, petrol, but they're not in an unpleasant way. I think it kind of balances out. And I think that's just from like, apparently, you know, fresh sugar cane really does have some of that flavor. Now, how far is Fiji from the epicenter of rum production in the Caribbean? Well, from the Caribbean, it's really far. (laughs) But I think think it's, uh, (laughs) I think it's, well, I mean, I think it it has a rum, heritage even if it's somewhat limited because of its connection with the english ah okay so you know barbados and uh some of the other so was 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 fiji like a way station for the british navy sailors yeah it's probably a good guess i mean you know there's other english colonies in the uh pacific but but not many right and and if you look at more french you know there's a lot more french on a map it's you know over by new zealand yeah definitely not close so so it's odd i think i mean surprising that there are so many relatively speaking there's four five six seven different you know lines of rum that are coming from the uh the fiji is it islands or just an island it's um is it an i feel like it's two islands if i recall uh but i mean again there's only really one distillery there but it, it's because they sell it off to uh you know essentially independent bottlers i kind of get on the finish like a sweet tobacco or something yeah it's, it's a little smoky. It, it took me a while to kind of get it because I was trying to harken back to like my cigar smoking days. And well, that, that's what I'm kind of getting on the finish. I, my immediate reaction is this is so much more smooth than either the Clarine or the Hamden or the um, or anything else that we've sampled this evening. It's uh, this is really a well-rounded rum. Yeah, I find it is, you know got that characteristic that I'm finding in the rums that I really like, which is just an incredibly like elusive character where it really changes from sip to sip. One sip, I might get more smoke. Another one, I get more sweetness. One, I get more of the tobacco notes. Another one, I get more grassy notes. Mm. And I feel like, you know, again, this would be a perfect one. Try it in different glasses, try it outside. You know, you get different things. And, you know, I think some of the you know whiskeys that we all love are, are, are similar, especially you know, Peter Whiskey, I think that's why we like it, because it adds this kind of enigmatic character to it that, you know, you're always trying to figure out, like, what are all these different flavors that I'm getting? Um, and I think you can get that in rum. I think you've got to look, look for it a little harder. Mm. Um, but when you find it, it, it's really fun. Yeah, like, that would be the kind of rum that I could see myself enjoying more, is the ones that have the similar inquisitiveness that you get from certain scotches. Where you're trying to pick out those notes and you think you can pick out a couple out of like the 12 that might be there. Or if you want to be really pretentious, there's 30 different things. And it reminds you of yeah. something crazy that you did 30 years ago. <laughs> I also think another immediate reaction to the plantation Fiji is that of the rums that we've sampled so far, 
in this episode, it's by far the most balanced between the nose, the palate, and the finish. There's not one part of that uh, trinary tasting experience that is so much more overwhelming than the next. Yeah. It's a nice long finish. Yeah, it's got a good long finish. And I think even, you know, seven years of tropical aging is, is uh, I think, kind of a respectable number. I think, uh, you know, when you're getting above that, it is where you, the price point starts going way up, I think. Um, but I think less than seven, you're getting a spirit that's still a bit young. And there's, so, no, there's no regulation of certain number of years of aging like there is in Scotland. No, not at all, because, you know, they readily sell white rums. Yeah. Um, although not all white rums mean they're completely unaged. They actually, there are some that are, get some light aging and then they actually filter it to filter out the color. Oh, wow. Because they, you know, especially for cocktails, people kind of expect white rum. Hmm. Um, so that's that's an interesting story. You know, this is definitely not a very kind of scientific or comprehensive rum tasting because we haven't even really tried a, a rum agricole, which is the French... Uh, style of rum that is made from sugar cane rather than molasses. So most rums you're having uh, these days are made not from like a pure sugar cane, crushed sugar cane. It's made from molasses. And again, I might need to do a little bit more research to know like how molasses exactly is made. Obviously, it's a sugar derivative. But when they make it from fresh sugar cane, uh, that's the kind of quintessential way that uh, rum agricoles are made. And we do have some, but um, th that style is where you get much grassier notes to it. And again, some people love rum agricoles. It hasn't been my favorite. A lot of people do use them for certain cocktails. And that's actually the one unaged rum agricole I have. I, I actually really do enjoy putting it in some cocktails. I, I, yeah, I haven't loved the agricoles. The uh, Co. from Haiti, I've, I've really enjoyed. It's been a good beach rum. I think it really shines there but otherwise uh, i haven't turned my attention to them too much yeah so i'm hearing a lot of rum being mentioned as like good things to do during the summer and like you're talking about like beach rum and like being out on the deck so are you drinking rum in the winter well you know this was my summer of rum so my primary experience with rum has been this summer and in the warmer weather in the winter i really see myself as more of a scotch person for sure, uh, the, the Islas and the peated whiskeys. Now that I've kind of opened my eyes to the broad spectrum of rum, there are so many rums that I could definitely see myself drinking in the wintertime uh, and coming home and, you know, having a dram while I'm washing the dishes of this one or that one. Always a great way to tube a dram, washing dishes. Uh, seriously, yes. <laughs> I agree. No, the other last thing I'll say, because uh, I know we've been going on a little long, is the, the point I would make about cocktails, because I think uh, as I, I normally uh, really drink my spirits straight and I've had a bias against cocktails, sort of because I feel like I'm already consuming all these extra calories through liquor and you know, not super healthy. And so then like when you make a cocktail and you add all this sugar yeah, on yeah. top through juices or other additives, you're just making it even worse. And you're also like losing a lot of the distinctive flavors. So I was a bit skeptical when I came to the rum world and like would read about people saying, oh, this is a decent to sip, but it really shines in cocktails or really shines in a Mai Tai or a Thai punch or, you know, a zombie or something. And um, I was, yeah, I, I was skeptical, but that, but I really, when I, once I finally kind of decided to do a little experiment on my own, I, I realized that they're, they're, they're right. 
that certain rums are not very good on their own. But when you add them to certain cocktails, even with additives like uh, lime and sugar, uh, syrup, uh, or bitters, or you know, light fruit juices, and, uh, that you still can taste the rum. You can still taste the distinctive elements to the rum, especially these uh, really high ester uh, Hogo Jamaicans. They, they're a little too intense to drink on their own, but when you mix them, you know, they kind of stand up to the uh, whatever you're mixing it with. So again, it really feeds into the point about being a summer uh, diversion and, and, you know, when it's hot out and you want something more refreshing, and some of these rum cocktails really are very refreshing, very tasty, but you but you still get some of the character that I think we look for as like spirit lovers. Definitely the Dark and Stormy was almost, a, I had never had that particular cocktail before and it was sort of a revelation in terms of having something in the summer that's refreshing and uh, yet, you know, you can still taste the alcohol and the, and the rum. That's a good one. Well, this has been a lot of fun. I think it's time to retire from the formal tasting and pour a dram and bring it outside. Yeah, what do you I, say, guys? I, I certainly appreciate the the time to get to try some of these rums because I'm admittedly not a rum guy. And it, there's certainly a whole world of this stuff that seems very interesting and has a lot of parallels with the Scotch world. So I think it's very exciting and looking forward to trying some more stuff. Yep. Thanks for listening and see you on the next episode of the Whiskey Snobs of Lower Moco. Why is the rum gone?